Greetings, friends. You're here with me, David James Young, for another week of All My Friends Are In Bar Bands. I'm very, very excited to have you here, especially if this is your first time. Welcome. Very much appreciate your time. What we do here is I get to talk to musicians from all over the place, all different genres, all different cultures, ages, walks of life, etc., etc. And I trace back what made them interested in music, what they've been doing with their music and where they think they're headed with their music. And we try and get in as much of that as we possibly can over the course of probably 30 to 40 minutes. It tends to vary, but uh, yeah, we've had a lot of great chats over the years and I am stoked that we are still getting new people in after all this time. So again, if this is your first time, welcome. Very excited to have you here. And you could not have picked a better guest to enter in on. Today's guest is Mr. George Clark. You will know George as the lead vocalist of the band Deaf Heaven, who were just in Australia touring around uh, on the back of their most recent studio album, Ordinary Corrupt Human Love. They played at the Farmer and the Owl Festival in Wollongong, and they also did a run of headlining shows in Australia and New Zealand as well. Uh, This interview took place before their show at the Manning Bar at Sydney University. And uh, yeah, this was, I think, my third, maybe fourth time interviewing George, but the first time that I've done it face-to-face, we've been uh, phone buddies for a few years since the release of the band's second album, Sunbather. It was great to get to chat to him face-to-face and get to hang out with him and the rest of the band while they were in Australia. Absolutely wonderful guy, could not speak highly enough of him. Really, really stoked to get to do this one. This could not have been made possible without... A couple of key people, so I want to thank first and foremost Cat Clark over at Cooking Vinyl Australia for helping to set this one up. I want to thank the band's tour manager and sound engineer for this run, the immortal, the legendary Mr. Dan Stork. And as always, I want to thank the incredibly talented Adam Buncher for his audio editing and assistance in making this one a salvageable recording. Uh, Everyone uh, played their part here, and uh, I, I appreciate that so, so much. It's, I, I, I know I do say that it is basically just me, and a lot of the time it is, but the truth of the matter is I would not be able to do this podcast were it not for the cooperation and the support of a bunch of other people helping to make this happen. So a big thank you to Dan, to Kat, to Adam, and of course, to George himself for taking the time to speak to me. Very, very much appreciated. If you want to get in touch, you can. Barboundspod at gmail.com is the email if you want to get in touch about a guest or potentially sponsoring or anything along those lines. You can also get us on Twitter and Facebook at Barboundspod. You can go to allmyfriendsareinbarbands.com. 
If you like what you hear, you can rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast over on Apple Podcasts. And indeed, you can get the podcast wherever you get your podcasts from, whatever app you're using. We're on Stitcher and we are on Spotify as well. So hit up all of those various avenues and you can hear this. And if you would like to support this podcast and myself financially, then you can do that by heading over to Patreon for as little as $1 a month, you can help support independent Australian music content from your boy right here. That's patreon.com slash David James Young for more information on that. Once again, a big, big thank you for listening. Really, really appreciate it. I'm not going to keep you waiting any longer. Let's get right into it. This is George Clark from Deaf Heaven. I'm David James Young, and all my friends are in bar bands. Today, I would like to introduce you to my friend, George Clark. Hey. How are you, man? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thanks for asking. Uh, it is Thursday evening, and we are at the Manning Bar in Sydney, and Deaf Heaven are back for their third trip to Australia. This is true. Yeah, uh, first time at this venue, though. Welcome back. It's good to be here. Yeah, we were just talking off mic about the show so far with uh, Divine Dissolve. Uh, Yeah, how's it all been so far? It's been really, really good. Divine Dissolve is sound checking right now. We were kind of just remarking. She's playing like a tenor sax, uh, I think. And how cool the dynamic of that, like, included orchestration is. Mm. So, not only do I get to see them every night, which has been a pleasure, but also as people, they've been uh, really solid, and thankfully everyone's gotten along really, really well, and uh, it's it's been a very positive experience. Fantastic, fantastic. Now, this is our first time chatting face-to-face, but I believe this is the fourth time overall that I've interviewed It you. is, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I was actually curious because I'd never seen you before. I was like, oh, we finally get to like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, have a little FaceTime, it's <laughs> yeah. nice. Um, so the most recent thing we did was uh, the story of Death Heaven and Five Songs, yep. which was uh, a lot of fun. Was that was that a weird one for you going back and like it, it was going through the archives? It was a little bit because you know we've been a band for almost nine years now, and I have spent almost the entirety of my twenties in it. And yeah. so when I go and I read really early lyrics and, yeah. and listen to really early songs when we were like you know 1920 yeah. um it's it's funny for me but it's also fun and it was a, a unique thing I've, I've never got to participate in something like that before yeah unreal oh thanks so much for doing it man yeah of course <laughs> i begin these by tracing back the initial interest in music specifically where it changed from being something that maybe you were watching on tv listening to on the radio etc etc to having like a switch on moment where it's like this is what i want to do i want to sing i want to be a musician i want to play in bands that sort of thing like uh tell us about how music can affect it into your childhood and indeed if there was any moment 
like where you saw something or heard something and it's like that's what I want to do yeah I think there absolutely was and I think it was at the moment that I kind of had discovered my own music uh, right yeah because I grew up in a, in a uh, house filled with music my mom is very into music yeah and she always raised me on things like Radiohead and Pearl Jam and, right. and Duran Duran and Nine Inch Nails and cool uh, she's a cool mom, <laughs> very cool mom. Uh, in fact, I remember we had this like MTV. It was like this Buzz Band compilation CD that had like White Zombie and Danzig on it and things oh, like that, yeah. which we would play in the house. Yeah, yeah. And it was great, and that was a bit heavier uh, edge for her. But like her favorite band is Radiohead, so. I was always kind of exposed to these things. I remember in fourth grade I bought, or I, I didn't buy, uh, I think I mowed a few lawns for, uh, <laughs> for Offsprings Americana, of which course. is which is really funny. And then by the time like fifth and sixth grade rolled around, I had gotten my first taste of like Metallica, which for me was Load and Reload. Yeah. And I got, when I was in sixth grade, that was the year that Korn's Issues came out. Fuck yes. And orgies, candy ass, and and things like that, mm. like 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 radio friendly new metal. Yeah, it's uh, crazy to think some of that shit was on the radio next to like the Backstreet Boys. I, compl- shit, I, I right? completely agree. It was mainstream music. Yeah, but it you know spoke to me in a different way, and and from there, I got a really heavily invested in listening to music, and that's yeah. when I kind of started, you know, isolating in my bedroom with you know tons of CDs and, yeah, yeah. And, and reading booklets and just like full immersion I think from then I wanted to pursue it more and then in 7th grade uh, I got a guitar and then I, I started you know reading more like magazines like Circus and Hit Parader yeah, and, and, yeah, yeah. and I would make lists of bands I would actually go to the back where they had t-shirt catalogs right? and I would find every band I that had a cool shirt that I didn't know anything about and I would make a list and I would go to the local record store, and whichever of those bands had like the coolest covers, I would buy because there wasn't yeah. a really a way to preview music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, I bought like Sepultura's Arise purely off the cover, uh, which was a gem. You know, yeah, it was yeah. a super solid find. I bought a Vulgar Display of Power from Pantera, based off the cover because it's like the best cover that's the one the dude getting punched exactly yeah. exactly and I was just like and I it was like that and then I got uh, Hate Breeds Satisfaction is the Death of Desire purely from the cover and then from there it was like Deicide Cannibal all those yeah. kind of things when I got more into that but yeah it was I know that's a really long winded answer but yeah. it, it was uh, essentially 6th grade into 7th grade it was like 10, 11, 12 yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. and that was that was really when I knew I at least like wanted this to be a big part of my life in so, some way yeah circling back to Metallica you're a Bay Area kid yeah yes and no um right. I've Carrie lived in Northern California uh pretty much his entire adolescence yeah I moved around a lot yeah and eventually settled in Northern California yeah of course the Bay Area has a very rich tradition of uh you know thrash metal and stuff and I definitely like wanted a piece of that mm. but wasn't really able to get a lot of that direct influence until I was older yeah right 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 so were you like an army brat or like why were you moving around so much? no my parents divorced when I was really young right yeah. um, my mom remarried a couple times so it was either like that kind of thing or job opportunity we just moved around a lot for the most part a lot of the time it was my mom my brother and I so it was kind of like whenever she found better uh i guess the main reason would be her finding better job opportunities and we just kind of floated yeah that sure way. 
So was it difficult then to latch on to any kind of like local music scene or community or anything like that? Like was there much of one when you were growing up? There wasn't and and it's it's kind of yes and no. Luckily I moved to a new town. I moved to Bakersfield, California. Hell yeah. Shouts out Bakersfield. Um, in six, Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I think that was, probably had something to do with this. Because yeah. I was in sixth grade at the time. And I lived there up until ninth grade. And in those three years, I met um, friends that I still hang out with today mm. uh, see today and we had our own little thing Yeah. so it wasn't like we were a part of a grander scene necessarily but I yeah. definitely found people with common interests at school all we wanted to do was listen to records and yeah. and like play music really poorly yeah. and, uh, and so I always had things like that and then in high school it kind of continued at least early high school I wasn't necessarily a part of a scene but I always was able to find common people yeah sure 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 but when do you like form your first band and play live for the first time so in in middle school these guys I was was referring to a second ago we had our band which was called Misanthrope of course course. Uh, I had a uh, BC Rich Warlock uh, which came at the time in like a pack. So if for like 200 bucks, you got the guitar and like a 15 watt practice amp. Oh hell yeah! Yeah, yeah. And and my friend had like a shitty drum set, and so we would like play shows in his garage essentially uh, yeah. to nobody. My first actual show, I was 15. I had this band called Fear and Faith Alike. It was like you know metalcore, like kind of trying to be like at the gates but yeah. but with more chugging and you know in in California in like suburban California when we didn't have a lot of access to like major city scenes yeah. the thing that filtered through the most was metalcore it was yeah. it was huge at that time and that's what people were forming those kinds of bands so it was something along those lines and i think we played like a church yeah cuz i was like the only you know, it was a small conservative town, yeah. uh, and that's where you could play. It was like, like youth groups would like get together on Saturdays and like sponsor, you know, like battle the bands and, yeah, and yeah. shit like that. Uh, it was very, very humble <laughs> beginnings. And I was never part of a church, and I've never been a part of a church, so like that was like weird too. I, yeah, me- I yeah. remember being like, like man, like I don't like, I don't like vibe with any of this, but yeah. it's the only place we can do it, and the people are were cordial, so. There you go. <laughs> well, you didn't burn it down, so kudos. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> I uh, showed some restraint. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about some of the, like the the musical projects and bands and stuff like that that were kicking around before Death Heaven started out. Yeah, there were a few, but again, kind of like what I just mentioned, like high school, you'd play five shows over a summer and you'd break up by the time the school year ended, kind of yeah, thing. Classic stuff like that. Uh, Carrie and I were in a project together before Deaf Heaven called Rise of Caligula, which gets brought up sometimes. I have to stress that this, too, was more in line with, like, Weekend Warrior-type structure. Yes. But we did put out a record when I was 18 onto CD, and that was fun and lasted a couple years. And then, essentially, it's just been Deaf Heaven. I mean, we started it when... I was 20. Yeah. And I just turned 30, so... Or I was 21, I'm sorry. 
So that was kind of it. Uh, it was it was a lot of kind of just fun and, and figuring ourselves out. Carrie was in a million bands because uh, he was like the only decent guitar player in town. So yeah, you know right. he he always played in in tons of different stuff. Uh, but neither of us really took anything seriously until Death Heaven came around. Did Caligula like tour at all? Or? We did. We did. Uh, I mean, tour is strong. Yeah. Uh, we we played outside of town a couple times. That's a big deal when you're a teenager. It was extremely big. It was. It was. I don't mean to. It was very sweet, and yeah, yeah. and and it ruined our lives, uh, <laughs> and and we blew up a bunch of vans, and we got out to West Texas. Right. I think to Odessa, which is a couple states over. I think that was the furthest we went. Yeah. But, like I said, to, to say we toured would be a, a stretch. We did play a lot, though. And, and it definitely was, like, instrumental in kind of figuring out how the whole thing works, you know? Yeah. I know it's a little bit uh, of time, like, between Death Heaven itself starting and, like, you guys actually starting to shows and stuff like that when when and where was the first Def Heaven show the first Def Heaven show was at the Parkside in San Francisco this must have been July 2010 yeah uh, and we were we were opening oh man this is gonna bum me out so hard yeah. I can't remember the band I, I, I know very clearly the band that we opened for but I can't remember their name right now but I will say this, they were like a Viking black metal band from Kansas, and they had like furs, and the mic stand was this like wooden stake, and they had all this like corpse paint, and they were really sweet. <laughs> uh, oh, it's, it's, it's bugging me. I, I, like, it'll come to me later for sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, their drummer actually ended up joining later on this band from L.A. called Lightning Swords of Death. Right. Uh, which is cool. Um, I don't know how long he was involved with that project for. But anyway, that was our first show. And those guys stayed at our house. And it was really fun. And then shortly after, we played a show with these two bands, Fell Voices and Ashbor. Mm. And then soon after that, we opened up for Marduk and Bastinage. And those yeah, three wow. those three shows were like in a month. Yeah. Uh, so we kind of hit the ground running. Um, but yeah, the first one, Parkside. Cool. What was the like scene around the band like at the time? Like, was it kind of similarly like DIY, like play with whoever, crash on floors, etc., etc.? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, we just wanted to fit in and make friends, so we said yes to every show opportunity. We got in pretty good with the Flinzer community, which was, uh, which is still exciting. But especially at that time, being a younger artist. Flinzer kind of like ran the experimental scene in San Francisco, the black metal scene in San Francisco, and right. so we tried to like kind of get in with them. Yeah. But yeah, it was it was a lot of you know just being poor and borrowing gear and crashing on floors and uh, partying too much and you know <laughs> caring more maybe about the partying than the show. Yeah. Uh, and it was a, it was a lot of fun. It was a blast. At what point do you start noticing things picking up for Death Heaven? Like, you know, my friends and I always say we know our, you know, a mate's band has made it when people we don't know start coming to the show. Yeah, yeah. It's like, what's your story? Do you, are you a co-worker? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was definitely a thing. It was weird for us because we didn't play locally a lot before we 
got picked up. So we had done like five shows, and then Deathwish had sent us an offer to. Uh, they originally wanted to release the demo uh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Pro- properly, mm-hmm. and we were like, "Well, we've been working on these new songs. Uh, we can't really show you anything, but if you like the demo, you'll probably like these." Uh, and they took the risk. And I guess it was kind of then. I mean, I was like, holy shit, we're, you know, we, we got an email from the singer of Converge, like, yeah. like saying that he liked our band. And then I was, and then shortly after I was on the phone with Trey McCarthy, who like is like the, you know, the head of the label. And, and that, that was a big moment for me. And then we started touring nationally. So we, we really only played a few shows before that. So I guess, I guess when I, when I felt like it was very real was, the following year in 2011 we had a record release show for our first album Roads to Judah at the Submission Art Gallery in San Francisco which was like at the time pretty much like the premier DIY-ish venue like it wasn't fully DIY but uh, you could basically do whatever you wanted there it was kind of ran by punks and and all of the all of like the more underground shows were, were going there so we had that and it was packed and I remember being like you know, impact is like, let's say, a hundred and fifty people or something sure, like that. Yeah. But I mean, I was like, oh, I was like, these people are here for us, you know. I definitely felt like we were on our way to something. When was the first Deaf Heaven tour? The first Deaf Heaven tour was. I'm gonna botch this. <laughs> I wanna say two. I want to say summer 2011 because I think we put out I think Rosa Judah came out in April 2011 okay if I'm not mistaken yes I do believe that was it I really need to know our own history better (laughs) (laughs) Um, and then that summer we toured with Ken Mode who is uh, from Winnipeg at the time they were on Profound Lore we had kind of developed a relationship with uh, Profound Lore and, and Chris Bruni a yeah. little bit, and I remember talking with Chris, and, and at the time, Ken Mode was kind of their outsider artist, because yeah. uh, they were doing noise rock, and and Profound Lore was primarily a you know, death and black metal label, yeah. and we were like the odd men out on Death Wish, which is a primarily hardcore label, mm. so he thought it would be like a cool match, and... We were like we, you know, it, for us, we liked Ken Mode, but it was also a matter of like we didn't care. We were like, we, you know, someone it's like someone's booking a tour for us. Like yeah. that alone yeah, yeah, was yeah. was wild. And we played like houses, and we played. It was all like DIY spaces and 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 things like that. Uh, but man, it was it ruled. It, it really did. I, I I got the bug really fast, and I yeah. just wanted to keep going, and and we did. Sunbather is obviously where everything changes. What do you remember about touring in support of that record? Like, did you kind of have a feeling from the outset that, you know, things were about to significantly change? We did, we did. It was really odd. I remember we finished the record and we were feeling good about it. Uh, At this point, we had become a a real band. We had done a couple years of touring. We felt like we could hold our own. But we weren't really, we still weren't really sure what, what people were going to think about us. And, and I remember just being like, if, if people like this record as much as they liked Roads to Judah, we'll be fine. Yeah. Right? Because that got like decent response. And then we kind of started seeing like online buzz about it really early before the tour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
and then the reviews started coming out, and uh, and that's when we were like, oh shit, like people really like this. Uh, that and, and I was just like, okay, like let's just go with it. And then the first tour off that record, we took out this band Marriages, who was at the time was kind of like the new band off of Red Sparrows uh, uh, yeah. that had Emma and Greg in it. Andrew Klinko played drums, and it was cool. I mean, it was so much fun, and the shows were good. And I remember just being like, you know, again, having one of those moments, like, I think what we're doing is right. Or at least we're headed in a positive direction. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just wanted to say, all right, we'll be good from here. Yeah. Oh, man. But, uh, yeah, obviously, on the back of Sunbather, you get to, you know, visit and tour a lot of places that you didn't get to on the back of Judah. And, like, what were some of the, like, personal highlights for you in terms of uh, touring, like, around that point? We did so much touring. Uh, It was great. We kind of, we did, we did, like, our global tour for the first time. We went all over Europe. We went to... Australia for the first time. Yeah. We went to Southeast Asia, Japan, Russia. I mean, I think we played literally like 38 countries or something. And that's when it became real. And then and it was very real. And we were making money and I quit my job. And people were fighting about us and people were loving us and hating us. And, and shows were like getting bigger and crazier. And it was, uh, it was a really surreal moment. You know, through it all... All we ever wanted to do and all we really ever still do is just, you know, play to our fans and yeah. and, and try to enjoy this experience. And uh, and that's when that kind of kicked in. We were just like, let's just go hard and have fun and do this to, like, the fullest we can. What do you think were some of the key uh, learning curves and, like, things you had to kind of navigate, you know, when you were first, like, getting used to touring on that scale? You you learn a lot very fast, uh, and you make a ton of mistakes, yeah. uh, all, you know, all the time. For me, for us, I think that we can credit a lot of our early foot wedding to Russian circles. Yeah, they essentially took us kind of like under their wing, and they took us on two tours, one in the states and one in Europe, and they really taught us how to be a band, and they taught us. You know, when you finish your set, get the fuck off the stage. You know, <laughs> like, like, like they, they taught us like urgency, and they taught us um, how to be kind—not how to be kind to promoters, but to remember to be kind to promoters, and to remember to to repre- represent yourself in the best way, and to you know uh, not be hungover all the time. Which, yeah. which that, we didn't learn that lesson. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> That's when you learn the hard way. Yeah, we, yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. It, t- it took a few more years before we got to that. Uh, but th- they were very instrumental early on with, with helping us out uh, and just, you know, uh, teaching us how to how to be a band and and, yeah. and how to be how to navigate this thing in like a, an adult way. Yeah, yeah, totally. So yeah, I guess in the last few years, like you've kind of stayed at that similar level in terms of touring and getting to play you know, all over the world again and again and again, like, I, I can't imagine, like, even after all that, you know, like, this is, like, the third, like, full proper cycle that you've done, it's not something that you or the, the rest of the band kind of takes for granted. 
Yeah, uh, no, I, I, I would say that we certainly do not. We're very, very, very lucky to do what we do. I think we're all very aware of that. I think it's what keeps us going because we're afraid that if we stop, you know, it's all going to come crashing. And, yeah, and, yeah, uh, and, and I think we're still kind of living the dream. And, and it's, it's fantastic. It's what, it's what I always tell people, that it's a job. Mm. It's very much a job, but it's a great job. And, yeah. and it's very fulfilling on, uh, on multiple levels. Yeah. As a performer in particular, like, you can definitely sense, like, from, I, I guess, starting out to, to the point where you are now, like, specifically you as a performer have obviously grown a lot more confident and, you know, like have focused a lot more on like the theatrics and like really like losing yourself and investing into the performance side of things like uh, do you feel like you've developed a lot of confidence through you know the album cycles and, and touring as much as you guys do absolutely the problem with us or the problem's not the wrong right yeah. word but right. the what happened with us was because we didn't play a lot locally we had to kind of learn our chops on the road yeah and not having your live show figured out when you're in front of national and international audiences is a bit tough. Yeah. Uh, we have, like, God, like, horribly embarrassing videos of, like, our first, you know, that I'll, I'll see on YouTube where I'm just, you know, it's cringing because I'm just like, because I don't know what I'm doing up there, yeah. you know? And, yeah, and we had to learn just through hard touring. And you're right. Through the years, I've gotten a lot more confident. I've gotten more into myself. I feel like... What I'm trying to convey on stage in a physical way is very honed in at this point. And it does come off a bit theatrical and it comes off a bit grandiose and, and kind of weird. And I like that. I, yeah. I, I try and I try and I try and be a physical representation of, of what's happening sonically, uh, if you know if that makes any sense. So Not sure. so it's it's it, you know, it's it's kind of a I've, I've read that you know I get compared to like a conductor or something like that because right, it's a yeah. lot of like this like big movement and and that is kind of what it is uh, it's also for a band that has these huge instrumental passages and I'm not playing anything I've had to kind of learn to navigate these big empty spaces with with some kind of filler movement you know um, otherwise I would literally just be standing on stage for like minutes at a time yeah. blankly staring out yeah do you play anything on stage anymore? Like, do you play keys or anything like that? Not on stage, no. It's something that we've talked about a lot and that we may move into in the future. Because I do play uh, keys and, and I, I can, you know, I play a little guitar. And it would be fun to incorporate those things in the future. But for now, I and I think the rest of the band like my role. Yeah, sure. uh, Which is just crowd engagement and... And, uh, and filling that, you know, that front man space, I yeah, guess. Yeah. Or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, yeah, sure. When you're young and when you're starting out, like, uh, I, I talk about this with a lot of uh, the musicians that I talk to, you have this very idealistic idea of, uh, like, these music biopic moments where, you know, something happens where you, like, you meet an artist or you get to play a certain place or, you know, anything like that. And it, and it feels like, you know, you've quote-unquote made it, you know what I mean? And, like... I, I think for better or worse, every every band like has those dreams in the back of their head, and you know some bands get to achieve those things. Like, do you feel like 
at any point over the over the years of Def Evan being a band that you've gotten to have some moments where you know you look back and you think teenage you wouldn't have believed that happened. Oh my god, they they happen all the time. They still, mm. I mean, they still happen. I'm not a chill person when it comes to being a fan. I'm yeah. very much like enamored with people yeah and i've often embarrassed myself in front of people uh and and i'm you know what there's a part of me that's happy about that because i it's a reminder that i haven't lost that like love of what it is that we do and and the world that we're in but yeah uh there's there's a lot of big ones uh meeting Hassan was was a big one um uh, touring with Lamb of God and Anthrax was a big one. Oh wow, yeah. Uh, incredibly difficult tour for us, but to be in that realm was was very important. Yeah. And uh, and, and very very cool. Um, I think the biggest one for me might have been meeting Lars Ulrich. Oh, dude. Uh, it was it, it was in the most surreal way you could you could imagine. We were playing this festival in Ohio. Right. Metallica was headlining, multiple stages, big open air thing. We were excited to see Metallica, but you assume that like you don't you won't actually like be in their presence until yeah, they're on stage, yeah, yeah. kind of thing, because they're so. Huge. It's Metallica. Yeah. It's Metallica. Yeah. That's their name. That's their, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> like they they are literally synonymous with the genre. Yeah. We're like standing side stage, and we have this like intro sample playing that we're waiting for it to like get to a certain mark so we can all like make our entrance onto the stage. And Lars like taps me on the shoulder from behind, yeah. and is like, he's like he's like oh some Bay Area guys can't wait for the show, and I just turned around like that, and I was like oh my god. <laughs> And I was, and I had to like double take, and, and I was like, "Oh, well, hey!" And he was like, and he just stuck his hand out. He was wildly nice. He stuck his hand out, and he was like, his son was really into the band, and oh, he was that's like, amazing. "Yeah," and he and his son was there, and uh, and he was like, you know, you know, my son loves you guys, and we're we're here to watch the show, and so. He watched the whole set, and then halfway through, Headfield came and watched some of the set, and had like two bodyguards and shit. And I was just, wow. I, yeah, I was like in the middle of it. I, I remember just looking around and being like, "What is, what is this What's life?" Yeah. yeah, and then and then later he gave us uh, like these side stage passes, and then when Metallica came through the L.A., he gave Carrie and I backstage passes, and it was this. It was it was really. I I feel so. Uh, nerdy and, and lame saying it, but it was such like an invigorating moment. I'm like, mm. my heart was pounding, you know. Mm. It was like, it was literally like being ten years old again. Yeah, uh, it was it was cool. So uh, yeah, we we've been fortunate enough to have a lot of moments like that where I've gotten to meet people that have really paved the way for what it is that we do, and uh, and it, that's that's still special to me. Is that a weird thing having the shoe on the other foot and like? having like people that are like really big fans of you like come up to you and like you're someone's Lars Ulrich super weird <laughs> I I don't know oh god I hope not Jesus um <laughs> that is weird I've only been experiencing that recently to be honest with you and I think it's because we've been around so long and like I said like I, I turned 30 a couple months ago yeah I don't feel particularly I'm not I'm not like some like vet yeah you like, know like, I'm not like I'm definitely not like some like veteran but people that are 23, 24, 
bought Sunbather when they were in high school. Yeah. You know, and that's a warp. And mm. people will tell me that, and it it never gets like easier. I'm always it like, feel that long ago, I, yeah, I'm, like, yeah. I'm always like, what? It happened the other night. Literally, this guy, very sweet. Uh, he had just turned twenty. He was uh, in in Brisbane, mm-hmm. and we were chatting for a second. And he's like, oh, I've been listening to you since I was 14. You know, and I was like, oh, my God, like, I'm old. And thank you. Uh, and, I, you know, I really appreciate that. So I think maybe stuff like that will continue to happen. Um, but, you know, from, from like, other bands, uh, we'll, we'll get it a little bit. But it's, it's mostly for peers, um, which which is always really sweet. Uh, but... Yeah, it's, it's, it's these people that are kind of coming to their 20s that bought our records when they were, like, in their early teens. That's kind of a mind fuck. Yeah, fuck that. Okay, so we'll wrap it up there, but before we do that, I ask this of all of my guests, and now it's your turn, George. I want to know about the best and worst shows that you have ever played. Ooh, this is a super fun question, because there's been so many of both. I've played a lot of bad shows. I'll, let's start there. I've played a sure. lot of bad shows. I've been yeah. I've been screamed at from audiences. We've we've had every obscenity in the world yelled at us. And and that for me usually constitutes a bad show more than anything. Yeah. Is when people are just incessantly heckling. But one that probably takes the cake even still is we played the Southern California Hardcore Festival called Sound and Fury. Oh, uh, yeah. In 2011? Maybe 11? Right, yeah, maybe yeah. 12. One of one of those two years. Yeah. And, like I said, early on we hadn't really figured ourselves out in a live setting yet. But I can confidently say it was the exact opposite of what every other band was doing. Yeah. And people didn't know what we were. Yeah. And we were the only metalish band and then they couldn't even really connect with that because we had like pretty clean guitars <laughs> so it was just like like so and and it was in this like rec center that had no lighting it was just it was just fluorescent lights it was just like like the most like the brightest room and i was so nervous because it's like thousands of hardcore fans yeah that I just got tanked. Yeah. I was like, I'm just going to start drinking. So we were in our van drinking, like, way too much whiskey. and day. And it's like a straight-edge festival, you yeah. know? And it's like the whole... It's so fucked. So, so we get on stage, and, like, nobody cares, and nobody likes us, and I don't think anyone even really wants us to be there. And we're like, instead of just, like, playing and getting off the stage and minding our own business, we're like, you know what? Like, well, fuck you, too. So we play this, like, sloppy awful set and I'm like sweating and spitting everywhere and it was really bad and it was and it was on and it was on camera it's on YouTube it's like one of the first YouTube videos you find so I'm constantly haunted by it but it's also a humbling reminder of how bad a situation can be (laughs) and not to anyone's fault but our own uh, truthfully and then the, the best shows best shows for me are always these kind of like these like benchmark shows like yeah it's like it's like when we're headlining in a city that we love, and it's like the biggest headline show we've played there uh, to date. So yeah. I remember like when we played Webster Hall in New York City, it was us, Envy, uh, and Tribulation. Uh, it was a fire lineup to to headline that lineup was yeah. a, was very nerve wracking, but we did it and it was amazing. And I just remember the energy was there, and it was this sold out show there's like 1500 people 
and I was just like kind of in awe about it. Yeah, totally. um, and so that that was one uh, like an example of one. And then last year uh, in Los Angeles, we played the Will Turn. Uh, which is the biggest headlining show we've ever played. And we had Drab Majesty and Uniform opening. Yeah. Again, Killer Bill. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, like 18, 1900 people there. And I just looked out, and, and uh, you know, including all of our friends and family and stuff like that. And I, I looked out at one point and was like, like, this is what it's about. Like, yeah. this is fucking, like, this feeling that I have right now is is what's always going to keep me coming back. So I guess I guess those would be two. The 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 worst show is 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 funnier undoubtedly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the album is Ordinary Corrupt Human Love. It is out now. It will be out still by the time that you hear this. George, thank you so much for your time today, man. I really really do appreciate it. Thank you. I enjoyed it. I'm real. I'm David James Young and all my friends are